logged into my work PC to yeah. send across the notes that I've done on lunch. And, um, <laughs> uh, and of course, I, I logged in, uh, went into Outlook, sent an email, shut the computer down. Instantly, the fan is just... <laughs> I was playing Doom Eternal on 4K settings, I suppose. So. <laughs> 120. Have you seen that the guys who did uh, Doom Eternal and they had it at like a thousand frames a second and they had the entire PC in liquid nitrogen? <laughs> Amazing. Is the thing is, it was literally so just a, a, a counter in the corner, like flicking between like 999 and 1000 frames a second. But of course, it's just That's a 120 brilliant. monitor and your eyes can only see 150. So it just looked like it was just running a bit smoothly. <clears throat> right then, should we, should we kick off? I think we can kick kick off with the baggies. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, other, what, what, what is West Brom then? What are they? It's West Bromwich, I guess, is it? Yes. It's just a, a average Midlands club, really. <laughs> So why would they be called the Baggies? Ah, uh, it's probably some ridiculous story about how one of their like, players didn't couldn't afford bloody <laughs> trousers, so he had to wear a bag or something like that. <laughs> he couldn't afford to buy a skirt, so he had to just like, sellotape a load of crisp packets to his thighs. So, <laughs> ah, and then a hundred years on, hey, crispies, the crispies. Yeah, and that like man's a, name was Bobby Walker. And that's what became, why it became Walker's Crisps. Because he wore them as a nappy. There's such a rich, it's a rich heritage. This is one of those things when you turn up to school and say, oh no, I forgot my PE kit, I'll have to sit it out. And they're like, no, put this nappy on and get out there playing rugby. <laughs> yeah. Put this crisp, put this put crisp slightly yellowed white front and get swimming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh god! Yeah, uh, I haven't got any clothes. I forgot to bring any clothes. Don't worry. Just put your hands over your genitals and get out there playing ice hockey. Yeah, uh, come on! It's it's January. It's fine out there <laughs> in Ottawa. Get out there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's been a good week for me this week. I've well, this is a first of all, this is a special Valentine's Day episode, and I'm very proud that both you and I are neglecting our respective partners to talk about In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood from 1993. I'm pleased about that. <clears throat> um, I've, I've had to sort of adjust the um, microphone setting so you can't hear Faye weeping in the next room. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've watched some really, like, some really nice mixed films this week, uh, and some chances that I watched. Uh, I look at you, Michael Pena, in Extinction. And I've got two examples of films that we were talking about last time that have plot twists that just don't save the film. Uh, it's quite funny, actually, that they happen this week. Um, oh. I've obviously got a sponsorship and um, I've got my uh, random film title generator. But first, Rupert, mm. how did you how did you do with getting uh, to was it from to Jeffrey Coombs from Thomas Jane or something? Yeah. Um, I unfortunately I can't give you the answer to it at the moment because I left my notes on my work computer. <laughs> All the complicated mathematical. Oh, no, no, seriously, it was it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Like it was actually one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Although I I get the feeling that someone's going to point out that they were like in a film together. But my God, I I. I, I know I said I'd do it without taking, like, reading up, but my God, I had to do some research on that. So it's too, it's too, um, it's too convoluted to possibly remember. So I'll have to, I'll have to come back to you. Maybe we can just uh, do an addition to this 
to this podcast once I've got the notes off my computer. But oh, it is possible. Okay. It is doable. Okay, that's but brilliant. For considering well, you probably just chose, you just probably pulled those two names out your ass, then actually they were pretty good as far as like <laughs> six degrees go. <laughs> um, yeah okay what i'll do then is obviously we're recording this in one session though this is the point where if you record it on your phone and email it to me i'll insert it here so we can see how you did it so i've intrigued myself and then um and then yeah we'll we'll maybe maybe set another one at the end of this episode i don't know i'll try and make the recording sound like as much like a 1940s gramophone as i possibly can so it's uh it's uh yeah this is this is ruby going from the the uh what, what was the game the the Arkin's Star game getting from Thomas <laughs> Jane to Jeffrey Coombs, and then it'll suddenly be really crackly. And, <laughs> and then, well, when I first looked at this question, I had to ask myself a couple of questions myself. <laughs> suddenly, it's a 40s radio show. Um, <laughs> it was 8 a.m. Um, yeah, so I was just a good cop in a bad city. Um, so this With a is... bad accent <laughs> in a bad radio show. Jeffrey Coombs was in The Frighteners with Michael J. Fox, who was in Mars Attacks with Jack Nicholson, who was in The Crossing Guard, which was directed by Sean Penn, who starred in The Thin Red Line with Thomas Jane. Um, so I've got a bit, of a, a bit of a blunderbuss approach to my films this week, but yours is much more focused, I understand. It's very focused. It's only five films, but what five films they are. Uh, these, this is the Dirty Harry series. Woof. Um, hang on, you've only got five films. Yeah, because there's only five films in the series. I mean, although Dave, the person whose name we'll <laughs> try and conceal as best we can, is Erotic Dave. Um, he did mention that there is another film called The Rookie, which is apparently just an unofficial Tertiary sequel. So I'll have to tag that on next week, maybe. So you've got five films and I've got 13. That's how this is going to work. <laughs> I don't see what's unbalanced about that. <laughs> okay, right then. Well, we'll just see how, see how we get, I suppose. Um, I can talk I'll... about The Mask a little bit, though, because I did watch that after you recommended it last week. Oh, nice. Oh, that's cool. Okay, because I've got one you've seen and you've got one I've seen. So before we go hurtling into these, let's just, um, well, let's get the random name generator out of the way. Let's see what we, we get thrown up this week. Um <clears throat> I'm I'm still still secretly hoping for Marry Me Grandad too, but uh, the chances of that are so slim. Wonky blood. Wonky blood. That's got to that's got to be a vampire film. Yeah, or a zombie movie, I guess. I guess it could be oh, like oh. one of these Resident Evil type things where, <clears throat> and obviously the title would be in the trailer because someone, it would be like a breakout in a science facility, high tech science facility. And then someone, like, someone would be exposed to this radiated blood. And one of the scientists would say, oh, he's, he's consumed the wonky blood. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Someone else says, is that a technical term? <laughs> How long have you been a scientist? Um, <laughs> yes. Those those awful trailers where it's just a honking ship horn between scenes. Yeah. So it's oh. like, <laughs> and then someone's saying, this isn't blood. <laughs> this is wonky blood. 
And then, are you a scientist? And then that would be it. That's the trailer. I'd watch that film. <laughs> like really, really badly researched. Like so badly researched. They don't even use pseudoscience. They just say, oh, it's bad. It's What's wrong with the blood then exactly? When you say wonky, what's wrong with it? Oh, it's just really bad. It's off. Smell it. Smell it. Go on, smell it. <laughs> we, we're going to keep it in the fridge. I've kept it in the greenhouse near my tomato plants, and then and and lots of yeah, like no no jargon at all. So when the when the when like the, the zombies rise from their graves, and then they they're looking out at this cityscape at, the, at these zombies like coming towards them, they're like, "What's happened?" And then someone the scientist says, "Well, they're dead, but now they're back." And all uh, oh, right, oh, okay. <laughs> um, right, this that, sounds it's, this sounds perfect for Paul W S Anderson. It's got to happen. <laughs> Yeah, Paul, if you're listening to this. Um, so, yeah, and and, um, and obviously, before we go hurtling into the two the two films we're going to cover, because I've seen Dark Waters, which you've covered, and you've seen The Mass, which I covered, um, yeah, let's get the sponsorship out of the way um, so we don't get in any trouble. And um, this week, we're sponsored by Taptastic, a new podcast from movie star Hugh Jackson. Hugh Jackman, not Hugh Jackson, as I said during the original podcast, like a fist. Hugh Jackman. In which he breezily melds in-depth conversations about his illustrious and varied career in cinema whilst tap-dancing some of his favourite routines. Episode 1 is available wherever you can get podcasts. Listen now. It's absolutely tap-tastic. And they've sent me a file, um, which I think is like a highlight reel from that first episode, so I'll pop that on. I was in uh, Kate and Leopold. He played a Wolverine in the X-Men. And I was, I was Van Helsing. And I did a voice in uh, Flashed Away. I've seen a couple of other films. Neil Patrick Harris. Les Miserables. Real Steel. In, in the pr- pr- prisoners with oh, oh, fucking take it. Oh, it wasn't it wasn't really what I expected to be honest. It, it, it seems like he'd be better off just doing the two things separately. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's quite a fit guy, but he whew, he sounded pretty uh, pretty cream cracker there, didn't he? Yeah, and the fact there's there's no like music in the background. You, you it's just t- tapping. I mean, yeah. that could be anything. Um, yeah. It could just be he struggled to keep the rhythm, but you know, what what a legend, eh? I mean, he's just a polymath, really, isn't he? <laughs> he just do anything. An autodidactic um, polymath, but that doesn't really come across when he's just gasping and saying the occasional <laughs> film title. So yeah, like a load of like a load of tap dancing and a rhythmic, like wheezy rapping over the top. It wasn't quite what I had in mind, to be honest. Yeah, but but then again, if you. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're interested in tap dancing and Hugh Jackman, that's a perfect combination of the two. But then again, you as you know, Rupert, from our podcast, you can't judge, you can't judge a, a like a celebrated podcast by its first episode. You're still working out the kinks on you, yeah, and the, and the Rolling Stones. Wow, gosh. Well, uh, if anyone's left in any doubt, that was the Greatest Showman showing why he's called the Greatest Showman. <laughs> 
so I watched Dark Waters uh, with Mark Ruffalo, uh, which mm. you've you've already covered a, a few months ago, I think. Um, I he did is really ruffled like, in that, isn't he? He is, yeah. He's, I think he's been at the cream crackers and put a little bit of extra cheese on them, hasn't he? Um, but I do like Mark Ruffalo. He can look very different in every film, and in the, he does look. I actually had to check his age because he looked so like hunched and like filled out in this. I was like, I'm sure sure he was the Hulk. Um, and yeah, I, I like the film, and it was. I thought it was a very powerful and quite astonishing message and information. But it it was quite long, and I, I got the. It felt like it should have been. I don't know if you said this, like maybe. Maybe like a small limited series, as opposed to a, like a two-hour movie. It yeah. didn't seem very cinematic. No, I and which is surprising, really. I, I don't know whether because Todd Haynes has done miniseries. He did uh, Mildred Pierce not so long ago, so he, you know, he's not averse to it. Um, and I think maybe this would have been better suited. Yes, as a miniseries, that would have worked. Because I, I got me this. I don't watch many of these sort of um, no. sort of. Uh, document things based on sort of real life uh, political um situations but when i was looking at um it reminded me of spotlight a little bit with his the music yeah. is is very stripped back and and it's very very much about quiet revelations there's no it's not like yes. big honking reveals it's more about you just have to take in the information and sort of decide for yourself the implications of it so it's re it's really good but um i was kind of Waiting, waiting for the end. At one point, I was like, "Yeah, this is this is astonishing," but um, <clears throat> I'm ready for this to be done now. <laughs> yeah, it's solid stuff, and I, I, I yeah, I, Todd Haynes could do that sort of thing in his sleep. Really, it it, it doesn't seem a very um, it's not that great a fit for for him because he's such an interesting director. He's made such a variety of films, but hey, it's still good. So still better than most films. So why not? Mm. It's worth it. Not to be confused with Dark Water, which I watched recently. Uh, again, the Hideo Nikata Japanese horror. It's a very different film. There's a there's a well, like a, an American remake of that as well, isn't there? There is, yeah, with Jennifer is, Connelly. Is it, is it better or is it not as good no. as the Japanese? Oh, okay. No, it's not as good. It's it's all right. It's solid enough, but. Yeah, Dark Water. I mean, I'll talk about it on the next episode, I think, in depth. But it's a, it's a very, it's got such an unusual atmosphere that film, and I don't think that's the thing that you can't really recapture in remakes. And that is it. Is that the one involving a backpack and it constantly banging down with rain? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Uh, yes, actually, I do remember. Technically, a <laughs> shoulder bag, but yes, a little bag which keeps popping up, and she just can't get rid of it, really. <laughs> um, haunted <laughs> bag, haunted Hello Kitty bag uh, from West Bromwich. It's another baggies reference. Uh, are you um? So yeah, the mask you were going to mention. Oh yeah, because you mentioned that uh, it holds up pretty well, and, it, and I agree it does. And I know what you mean about like the CGI moments. Uh, they're so cartoony that it, you know, even though it's 1994, it's uh, not an issue. And and Cameron Diaz was. I mean, she's, it's such an amazing entrance for her, uh, you know, that was her first film as far as I know. It does say introducing Cameron Diaz and she does make an impact. Um, yeah, and the bad guy, his name Peter Reigert, something like that. Peter uh, Green. Peter is Reigert is the, um, the the cop, the one who says, oh, if, right, you, okay. if you start dancing, I'll blow your brains out. My favourite line in so the film. It's so good. Um, oh, so Peter Green is the guy, right. Uh, and he's 
horrendous. Yeah, right, genuinely scary. It's a it's a genuinely disturbing film um, in some ways, and I like that. I like the fact that it's got this sort of bizarre horror element to it. And it's weird that at the time I really didn't think of it as being a comic book movie, and yet now it very obviously is sort of thing with the whole kind mm. of fictional city and everything. It's just yeah. I guess back then we weren't really used to comic book movies being the big a big thing. Uh so yeah, it's yeah, it's very good still. And yeah, I I think Jim Carrey I think about the film the three films that Jim Carrey made that year. So The Mask, Dumb and Dumber and Ace Ventura. And although obviously they're all quite broad comedy, they're three pretty different performances in terms of the kind of character he's playing in each of them. Because really in in The Mask especially, well, only in The Mask really, out of those three, does he get to play a kind of everyman, just regular schmo type person? <clears throat> but he also gets this other alter ego. And I, I guess The Mask just enhances those parts of himself that he would like, the extroverted parts of himself that he would like to express but isn't able to because of his confidence. Um, which is pretty cool. Yeah, so it's no wonder that that year was a very special one for him. It's uh, Peter Green, weirdly, the, the main bad guy, the creepy guy in the mask, uh, crops up in a film I'm going to mention later on, as he was almost cast for a part in it, and I could just clearly imagine him in the part, but we'll come to that later on. <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll kick off with a, a, a brief two-minute if that's cool. Go for um, it. This is In the Line of Fire, starring Clint Eastwood and Rene Russo. Hashtag would she fancy him? Um, so this is uh, this is no. <laughs> this is uh, and John Malkovich. Sorry, this was the last film that pardon me, Clint Eastwood did that he wasn't involved in with regards to like writing, directing, or producing. I didn't know that. I so yeah, I was I was quite intrigued. And this is one of those films. This falls into the same category in my mind as uh, 1997's Air Force One with Harrison Ford, where. I see it so Which I often. think was also Wolfgang Peterson, in fact. Yeah. Yes, yes, it was. I, I I assume I've just seen them, and I don't think I have. Um, I think in the case of Harrison Ford, it's because he's played that character for twenty years at that point, and and with In the Line of Fire, I just I just completely mixed it up with something else in my head. So, <clears throat> so far as I'm aware, the first time I'd seen it. And I thought it was a really, really solid film. And the the plot is that Clint Eastwood is a is a, a secret service agent, very much at the end of his career, and everyone thinks he's just you know just an old bloke and he should knock it on the head. But he has got really nothing in his life beyond his job, and he st- he looks into John Malkovich playing a character called Booth. Well, the pseudonym is Booth, and um, he's focuses on Clint Eastwood's character and his constantly calling him on the phone and teasing him and following him and um, heckling him to try and drag him further into this plot that uh, John Markovich has got to assassinate the president and Clint believes he's the only man who can stop him it's a film that's very much about the um, perceived redundancy in old age and cowardice and courage and Mm. I quite liked it because it never it, it, it always felt small scale it felt like it was quite character driven and mm. Clint Eastwood obviously is, can do this stuff very well. And John Malkovich is oddly almost seductive in the, the phone calls they have with each other where John Malkovich is teasing him and drip feeding him possibly false information as, as, as the net closes in on him. It's, it's almost 
it's almost like he's seducing him in a weird way, mm. like give, giving him meaning. And of course, John Malkovich has got a great, almost uh, relaxing drone to his voice, yeah. but he's all, he's also got a really good shouting voice. So when he loses temper in this, it's quite impactful. Um, I really liked it. Gary Cole rocks up in it, obviously. <clears throat> and the, this is a slight spoiler, but I was a little bit disappointed in, in the the very ending because the whole, a lot of the film there's about, I'd say there's about 10 to 12 sort of set pieces very dialogue driven where they're just having conversations on the phone obviously two ends of of this opposing spectrum and they're the best parts of the film really and the when the film i thought it was the final scene and i thought that's actually quite a cool idea and where they the, the film plays out whatever happens happens and then when Clint Eastwood returns to his flat. He walks into his apartment with Rene Russo and they don't speak. And he's just there to change his shirt because they're going up for dinner after everything's happened. And as he's changing, he presses the button, his answering machine. And there's one final message from John Malkovich. And it's, it's a message he's left him quite a long one about what's going to happen that day. That This is the day the assassination is going ahead. And of course, Clint Eastwood has been so involved in these phone calls, but what he does is he just, they don't, speak to each other him and Rene Russo they just kind of look at each other and put on their clothes and leave and shut the door as the message continues playing like he's done with it now and I thought oh that's quite cool actually but then there's just another scene where they're just having jokey conversations looking at the Washington Monument eating ice cream or something and I'm like what that that okay there's a clear ending there yeah yeah like a really nice moment that uh, was just ruined so yeah it's it's a good film it's a very solid thriller and um it, and um, I was—it's not Dermot Mulroney; it's Dylan McDermott is in it, who's also got a great voice. And um, maybe a fancy, maybe I don't. It's hard to say. So yeah, that's um, in the line of fire, which is on Netflix, and definitely worth a goosey if you haven't seen it, or if you're like me, you think you have, but you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that we've discussed this one before because you were—you—you you were convinced it had Linda Hamilton in it. I think that was the. <laughs> Which is was close, I suppose. It's probably uh, similar age to Rennie Russo. What does Rennie Russo look like now? Well, I've actually seen her. Actually, was it Rennie Russo? No, it was wasn't. She it. in the one with uh, Oh Jet Gyllenhaal. The um, the one where he's the photographer guy and he's going around. What's it called? Oh yes, uh, oh Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler, yeah. Is she in that? Yeah, she, she is. A, she is yeah. in that. I'm just wondering, she was in... Is it Jessica Biel who was in that film? Ava, Jessica Chastain, Jessica Biel, Jessica Chastain. Yeah. She, I think, if this is the woman I'm thinking of, if it is her in Ava, which we talked about last week, let me just quickly... Yeah. I'm just doing some last-minute research. Wasn't pretty good, as far as I remember. Oh, God, let me tell you, Ava movie... No, it wasn't. Sorry about this. I understand that... Um, was it called Ava? Yes, 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 it is Ava. And is it Rene Rousseau? No, it was Gina Davis who, who was in She'd had uh, work Clive done. But I don't, <laughs> I, yeah, Rene Rousseau I haven't seen since Nightcrawler, I don't think. Okay. It just, it's it does sadden me when you get these, like, really cool, um, like, f- female actors from the 80s and 90s. And, and then, you know, they start getting work done and... And it just, you know, like Meg Ryan and people like that, it's just, it kind of, it, it's, there's no reason for it. They could grow old gracefully and 
still be getting getting work. There's no reason though they shouldn't be getting work, and you know because their talent will shine through. But then they're not going to get the sort sort of work they're going to get before if they've yeah just massively re- reconstructed their faces. So I I hope I hope she hasn't gone down the Meg Ryan route. The Meg Ryan route. So um, yeah, that's um, that's that's in the line of fire. Uh, you've got quite a few to get through. Have you got any other, anything else you want to discuss? Um, I can qu- yeah, I've, I've, I shall, I'll carry on for a couple more, shall I? I guess if it's okay. waited my way. I watched Violent City uh, on Prime, OBS, starring Charles mm. Bronson. Um, this is from 1970, and I don't know if this is the film where Charles Bronson met. Is it Jill Ireland, the woman who he ended up marrying? I think it's Jill Ireland. Her name is. Um, uh, so this is a film. Like I said, 1970, and Bronson is a hitman who wants to retire, but a series of events involving Jill Island sort of keeps dragging him back. This is a very strange film. Um, I didn't really know what to expect, but because I think oh, that film, I forgot the title, we watched a few, I watched a few weeks ago with Jack Palance in that 70s Italian film. Mm. This is a, another film set in, in, I believe it's in Italy, and it starts off with this really weird silent car chase where Charles Bronson's in the car with, with Jill Island. And obviously it's sort of projected footage from in the car and Mm. he is for no reason. They don't know why, but he's just being chased around these Italian villages with these winding streets. Um, and they're being chased by four men in a car, but no one says anything. And it's really odd. So you've got Charles Bronson swinging this big weighty seventies car around these like dusty roads, driving through these villages, these wind up some steps down these paths, trying to lose this, these pursuers. But when it cuts the footage in the car, um, Jill Ireland just is reacting like she's bored on a child's roller coaster. She's like <laughs> rolling her eyes. And Charles Bronson is just staring dead ahead. And they just don't speak or act as if they're in any kind of danger. It's just odd. And this, the music at the start as well sounds... I made a note of it here. It sounds like a load of ducks stoned shouting at each other in a quarry. It's just these like blaring horns. <laughs> and I thought... And I had to keep on fiddling with the volume. I thought the music cannot be like this all the way through. And the music actually, as the film goes on, gets more and more funky. It get, gets more and more seventies. So you end up with some like quite nice funk music, but it's, it's a bizarre opening. Um, it's a weirdly like compulsive film because it's set over a two or three year period where Charles Bronson gets caught and he goes to prison and he, uh, and he, and he comes out again. But of course, because, <laughs> because Charles Bronson's acting style is so, shall we say stoic, it, it's, it, it's like you have no, there's no growth in him as an actor or as a character. So it'll cut back to these periods where he's talking to the same people who you see in the other periods, but everyone is so two dimensional that you think, I don't know if this is before you slept with Jill Ireland, if she's dead, if this is just before, after you're in prison. So you just, it's like a very um, cut up feeling. There's a really bizarre scene, surprisingly lengthy where Charles Bronson is in prison and I thought I'd sat on the remote control. So he's in prison and all of a sudden <laughs> this spider, this huge spider appears on someone's shoulder and it crawls across all three men. And they're in various stages of terror. The most terror I had was Charles Bronson's thick white sports socks yanked up to trousers that just meet his shin. And then like black 
brogues with tassels on. I thought, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> so this spider crawls across them. Obviously, Charles Bronson doesn't really react. But when they speak after this really weird scene, they just all started talking in Italian. I thought, what? Um, so I was, I thought I've obviously like pressed. No, no. The film will, for minutes at a time, just switch languages. And <sighs> when I turned the subtitles on, the subtitles are like minutes behind. So I had I had no idea what was going on through a huge uh, huge sections of this film. They will start speaking Italian mid conversation. Um, tell us about unlike Dario Argento's phenomena then in that regard with Jennifer Connelly. Oh, does it do that? It's a similar thing there. Yeah, where suddenly they'll just break into like dubbed Italian halfway through, <laughs> and then come back out, and it's like what? I, I, yeah, it's bizarre. Like I mean, that seems like an artistic choice. I mean, surely they can. Over, we'll just keep the English or overdub it with English, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> I don't know because, of course, it's post dubbed anyway, so you've got post dubbed yeah. English and then it's like just Italian with no subtitles, and you think, I don't know what's happening. Um, there's, there's a scene in it where Charles Bronson just sort of does this suicide drive with Jill Island after they've they've argued, split up, and she's gone off with another bloke, and he drives really haphazardly down to the docks, it goes into a warehouse, throws her on some. Um, some like sacks and just starts raping her and she's like saying get off don't. and he's just about to rape her and then they get distracted by four men coming in beating up another bloke in the other room and then they just sit up sort of she's topless and he's just got his trousers undone and they just sit there and sort of tut at the state of the city and then the scene cuts to something else like, mm-hmm. what he was just about to sexually assault her for no reason um there's Oh, yeah, the 70s. <laughs> speaking of the 70s, his clothes in this film, he is constantly, right, bearing in mind, it is blazing Italian summer. He is constantly wearing really thick, tight jackets, fully zipped up, but just with nothing underneath. So he's just wearing like um, thick white leather jackets or like padded winter jackets, but you can just see he's got nothing on underneath them. I don't know why. I, I was trying to work out what it was all about. But as bizarre as this whole film really is. Warm. Yeah, you just at least pop the zip down a bit, Chuck. There's a bit where he assassinates someone by um, putting, by shooting them as they're driving a car from a distance. And there's a scene, bear in mind this is 1970, he takes out a Sony Trinitron he's taken with him from a picnic basket and puts it in a tree so he knows when he's in this race that he's waiting for this guy to come around the certain corner where this guy is in the race, right? So he can like time it and shoot his tire up, make it look like an accident. The image quality on this 1969 portable television with, in, with which probably runs on 40 double C batteries, um, which is balanced in this tree with a little antenna poking up, is pristine 4K. It, I was looking at it thinking, come on, you would you'd at least have a little bit of static in that. But um, <laughs> it's kind of, the film is bizarre enough to keep you watching. And then the, I really like the ending sequence. The last five, 10 minutes, I, I was a really big fan of. But it's, I was, We've talked before about Point Blank with Lee Marvin, how it's a very druggy film and it just seems really dated and quite tiresome now. I think this is just a genuinely quite bizarre film. And I think it is definitely worth a goosey if you're a fan of 70s um, cinema. So it's not just indulgently trippy and weird for the sake of it? No, I think think it's just, it's like someone edited it when they were pissed. That's how I got this. But it's, the plot isn't that complicated too complicated to follow but it's just these hard cuts jumping around this time this sort of like quite short timeline and you think what what but it, it is worth it because it, it's so deeply 70s and uh, it's satisfying he was in 15 films with jill island 
he must have really said, oh, do you know what, love? Because I, I fancy you, do you want to get in the film as well? And, and get them out, no reason. She's constantly topless in this film. <laughs> and in the uh, sex scenes as well, he is just glistening with sweat all the time. Um, so it's just brilliant, really. Um, right then. Uh, any more you'd like to just cover quickly? Or are we moving uh, into Clint? I'll- I'll I'll do moving. On, I'll do one more quickly. Have you seen Rampage, the the one based on the games? Yes, I have. Yes, right. I think this is one of the best video game adaptations I've seen because I was a really big fan of this film. Um, okay. I, so this is um, this is I think it's two thousand eighteen nineteen, and it stars The Rock, and he is a primate expert who has a, a very specially close relationship with an albino gorilla called George. So this is based on the, quite frankly, average at best video game series by Midway, which stars uh, George, Ralph, and Lizzie as, a, as a, a, a giant gorilla, a giant lizard, and a giant wolf. And the, it's, it's really cartoonish, because Jeffrey Dean Morgan is in this film. Um, as George gets bigger and escapes and the film kicks off, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is such a cowboy in this film. I was waiting for him to start line dancing at some moments. But really, because you're literally, you were laying this on thick. And then you've got Malin Ackerman and her brother uh, as a cartoonishly evil corporation head. And I just, the way that The Rock communicates with George is through sort of sign language. I don't know if it's actual sign language or just something made up for the film. I but, imagine so. I felt like because the, the rock is so sort of dedicated to his character and because he's got George to wink at, he never winks at like the audience. So I never felt like I would. This is really tiring. I just mm. find it like kind of charming. There's some yeah. weightless CG in it, but I did like mm. the designs of the, the giant monsters. And again, I am a big fan of monster films and um, I found this such a quite cheesy fun. Yeah, I remember I, being fine. Uh, I did. It's pretty forgettable. I I, I thought um, it, it's the same guy he worked on with on that. I want to say San Andreas. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Is that what it's called? Yeah, the disaster film he did with San Andreas. I th- he might have worked with him on other things as well. But and he did. We did um, another called skyscraper as well, didn't he? So it could have been. Yeah, that. and it. Yeah, I know. It, the it's the CG is not. I guess it's because the CG is so indulgent. There's no, it, it seems quite thoughtlessly applied. I found with the CG in these films, but but yeah, in terms of obviously the rock is charming and it's quite a sweet kind of uh, King Kong esque relationship, isn't it? Between yeah, the two. yeah, um, yeah. I thought it was all right. Yeah. So that's good. I hope they make a sequel because I like monster films and there's not enough of them around, quite frankly. So, yeah, yeah so you do a... get some proper monster fighting towards the end, especially, don't you, as well? Yeah. And you are, you are like rooting for George because he is like quite, a, like you say, a sweet character. So, but yeah, I'll, I've, I've talked long enough. So I will, um, I will let you. Uh, but one final thing before I go on because I, I have got a few more to get through. Mm. I watched the, the Sum of All Fears with Ben Affleck and Morgan Freeman. <laughs> and it is so absolutely average that I, I I was sitting here making my notes and I thought, I literally just can't remember anything. I just remember, you know, the, the East and West and the nuclear warheads and talking on phones. It's a boring film. That is a boring <laughs> film. Um, yeah, this sounds like the kind of film that you probably you watch now and you will forget you watched in about 10 years' time and watch it again and think, have I seen this? 
Yeah, I think I must have. Anyway, I'll put it in the line of fire on because I haven't seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely haven't seen that. I fancy a bit of Linda Hamilton. Um, <laughs> right then, let's talk about Dirty Harry then. Good. Dirty Harry, played by Clint Eastwood, 1971. So this would, was post Spaghetti Westerns, um, 1971, directed by Don Siegel. So the story is that as this sniper nicknamed Scorpio is killing people around San Francisco. All the movies are set in or around San Francisco. Scorpio, yeah, he, he's... He's sniping people, killing people from distance. He's a bit of a nutter. He blackmails the mayor uh, of the city for a rather quaint $100,000 or he'll kill someone new every day. And so Dirty Harry, or just Harry as he's known, um, and his new partner try to get this guy um, but it's to no avail. So they decide to pay the ransom because this guy's just killing people over the shop. Um, so there's a quite a lengthy sequence where Harry has the bag of money. And the deal is that Scorpio will bounce him around town to make sure he's alone. If not, he'll kill his captive. Um, and ultimately, the second half of the film is really Harry trying to get to this guy and save the captive before she's killed. Um, and... It, what's intriguing is that there's a point in this movie where other films would probably end, uh, as in it would be the final kind of sequence. But but Dirty Harry, it, it keeps on going into its most interesting territory, and it has a bit of um, it has a bit more of a, a kind of political edge to it after after that point, where it's more about. Um, the killer guy waging a kind of PR war against the police department and turning um, people against the police. I mean, this is all of these films are very pro police. Uh, uh, the opposite of films made in South Korea where the police are just <laughs> complete buffoons. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's very much like, um, you know, it's like, well, Dirty Harry's whole character, his whole character is about getting things done and like getting absolutely exasperated with the red tape and stuff. Anyway, it's also a kind of proto buddy cop film, really. Um, I think the only difference is, is that whereas the kind of uh, heyday of the buddy cop film in the 80s, they tended to be a lot more character focused and all to do with the interplay. Whereas this being a 70s film, it's much more plot focused. So there isn't such a focus on their relationship. But it's de there's definitely a buddy cop element to it. And there's even one scene, which Lethal Weapon literally just stole wholesale, which is where really? it's like a suicide jumper on a roof and Harry has to go up and talk him down and obviously does it in his own inimitable way. Um I was concerned going into these films about the kind of social attitudes and, but I was pleasantly surprised that Harry himself, he's not, he is bemused by social progress, um, particularly in the hippie scene, obviously, which would have been pretty big at the time, but he isn't a fascist. He's just a public defender. And it's really, it is the killer who's the fascist because he's just targeting Black people, gay people, Catholic priests. He's just, he is 
a monster. But um, I think it's a really well-made film. It's these really, really excellent long tracking shots through the police precinct, which give it a real sense of place. Um, there's it, It's got a really fast pace. It's got really good editing. This convincing dialogue between the cops. There's a lot of like gallows humour and stuff and um, and kind of believable banter kind of suggesting that they're comfortable in each other's presence, which I thought was nice, nicely observed. Um, plot wise, there is some somewhat fortuitous plotting to keep the momentum going. I won't lie. Like when like there's one bit where the wounded killer is treated in a hospital and when Harry turns up and he's gone, the doctor happens to know who the killer is and is able to send him onto the next clue. And it's like, yeah, well, that's that's lucky. That is, he's just turned up, and this doctor happens to know who this person is and where they where they live. It's like, yeah, but I do love what I really love about this because it's kind of a cat and mouse type thing. I love how Harry is always nearly catching the killer, so it really feels like more of a chase move than a detective thriller, really. And I mean, when I say he's nearly catching the killer, he's constantly just literally fifty yards behind him, and like, there's all he's so many scenes where he's just about to get him and the guy manages to like run away and they've got these chase sequences and yeah, it really k- keeps attention going. And you've got Lalo Schifrin's music, which is pretty, pretty funky at times, but also quite avant-garde yeah. at other times. I note how it's very much um, live instruments at this stage in Lalo Schifrin's career. <laughs> it would not remain so. Um, by the end. <laughs> Did he buy a keyboard at some point? <laughs> I think he might have done. I think Georgia Moroda popped round and just lent him a gas. I've got a, I've got a spare Roland D50 in the garage. <laughs> um, so it's kind of old fashioned, obviously, in so far as it's it's got this pro cop crime doesn't pay agenda thing going on, except instead of it being instead of the crime doesn't pay thing being based on a moral argument it's more about the decisions that cops have to make and their interpretation of justice if you see what i mean it's not just a case of saying all right you know like uh it's not as black and white as saying oh uh, you know you got cops and you got robbers and it's you know one's good one's evil it's more it's more about the the everyday decisions and the the kind of risks that cops have to take in order to um in order to keep the streets safe so to speak so uh i think it's quite a smart film and it's it's really fast moving uh very watchable hasn't aged too badly so i think it's really good Oh, no, I'm very surprised by that because, I, again, this is a film that I do. I, I, I'm in a bit of a Clint Eastwood slash Harrison Ford mood, mm-hmm. and um, I, I was, I think I've watched this from a long time ago. But um, I, like you say, with the social attitudes, I wondered if it would be just a bit sort of painful to watch. But mm. if, if no, there was no said, moment where there was no moment where I felt like uh, it, it wasn't like you know, like 48 hours or something where there's that kind of rather one-sided, just racial slurring going on. It was, there was never any moment of that. It's, it's like Harry is, yeah, he will, he, he will make derogatory comments to people, but it's pretty much everyone. Like, it, it, like there's no real, he's, he's not, 
he doesn't discriminate very specifically. He just discriminates against everyone. Like he's such a kind of lone wolf. And and really, when it comes down to it, like although he is cynical about his partners throughout all these films, actually, um, it's for a reason because they keep dying and <laughs> getting shot and maimed and stuff. And and so it's more out of protection of them. It's not out of like, oh, I only work alone. I definitely don't work with, you know, insert racial slur here. There's nothing yeah. like that. So it's yeah, I, never, yeah. If any, if any of those social attitudes are there, it's more under the surface. There's, there's, there's three things I just wanted to mention. You, you popped in my head as you were talking about that that review. One of them is that Andy Robinson, who plays Scorpio, um, was also in the first Hellraiser film, and I remember I remember him because he's got that brilliant. I think it's him who's got the sequence where. He talks to that woman and says, oh, I, I'm going to take you, you know, be on a path of eroticism, like beyond this world that the human mind can barely comprehend. And then he just sneers at her back for a bit while he's sweating. And you think, eh, is that the peak? Is that the peak of human endurance? Or are you just pulling her face? Um, <laughs> the second one is that um, the, you said about the cops and robbers, and it reminded me of a game on the Atari uh, called Cops and Robbers, where it's like a maze game, and one of you starts in the middle of the maze, and you've got to get out, and the other one is the the um, cop, and you've got you basically two lines electron, and you've got to get to the other person trying to get out of the maze, but of course there's only one path, so you will just always be caught because it's just just following the same path. It's a massive design flaw. The sec the third thing is um, we're talking about it's not like forty eight hours where you know you say Clint Eastwood just is basically just nasty to everyone i was just reminded of that opening scene the introductory sequence we get to nicola um uh, nick nolte's character in that mm. where he wakes up in a bed with a woman that he loves and he puts a fag in his mouth and just starts like just ignores it and just gets ready to go to work sort of thing yeah. and she says something along the lines of oh like are you, are you coming home for dinner and he's just yeah, you shut up shut up <laughs> You're like, that's your wife. <laughs> just, this is you some prostitute or something. No, this is the love of your life. Okay, this is <laughs> as good as it's ever going to get for anyone in your presence. <laughs> um, I watched Greenland, um, which oh, yeah. is a new film with um, Gerard Butler. Um, he is a structural engineer who lives with his wife and son. Son is diabetic. Luckily. I did panic before he opened his mouth, but he's just speaking in his natural Scottish accent, although he still very pointedly calls it math instead of maths, as he would. Um, maybe not quite the amount of sibilance, but you get my point. Um, so the, the film is basically a, a, an end of day sort of thing where um, there's a, a meteorite, uh, I think it's called Clark, that's supposed to be just harmlessly passing the Earth in fact, is just going to be the cause of an extinction-level event. And Jared Butler's just going around his um, his day-to-day -day life with this. He's separated with his wife, but they still live together for the, for the good of their son. Probably not the best situation to be in. And uh, he gets a call from the government that says, your family's been chosen to, to go to this bunker to hunker down and rebuild the Earth because, obviously, he's a structural engineer mm. after the meteorite hits. So there's some nice sequences at the start where, obviously... This happens at like a barbecue and everyone is with him saying, how come you get that message? And we didn't. And it's quite a, when he's like, OK, let's just pack up the car and shoot off. And everyone's saying, can you at least take, you know, my daughter with you? Don't worry about it. And he's like, I, I can't. Then we'll just get in the why, bunker. Just let in. Why, why would he tell anyone or is this, it, does it just slip out? 
it comes <laughs> just slip out. Um, he he's um he's like, I'm off to the bunker. Oh, didn't mean to say that. Um, <laughs> it's a pub. It's, it's a pub. It's a pub called the Bunker in Cardiff that's closed down now. He, he um, it's because he gets a message on his phone, and he 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 has to instantly tell his wife and kid like we have to go now in the middle mm. of a party, and people say why, and then the message comes up on his TV and his answering phone because obviously they're just trying to get in touch with him any way they can. Um, so everyone just gets made aware of it. Mm. The film then they, they when they arrive then this isn't really a spoiler. It's the first. It's more of the setup when they get to this um air base that's going to fly them to this bunker in Greenland uh, the military personnel there who was uh, arranging everything find out his son is diabetic and they didn't know and they can't go, it's been an oversight and they can't go so they can't have anyone with any, any illness or medical conditions so they get separated really? it, it, yeah, it seems like they, quite a manageable condition, oh, okay they get separated and the whole film then is, it's basically a, a almost a familial drama around the end of the world where they get separated yeah. and they're desperately trying to catch up with each other um, at some point along the way. I actually quite like this because the film is really pacey. It's a surprisingly pacey film. And the things that happen, it, admittedly, it does suffer from, you know, the, everything breaks down within minutes of this. And I suppose, you, you know, I understand how everyone would panic and you're thinking... Well, I'm going to die. I'm going to die with my entire family, like you know, a huge amount of the earth. But then people just instantly are just like looting, and you think, why are you nicking tellies? What, like you know, surely there's another something else you could do. Um, so, but what happens is they obviously see the worst of humanity as as they're getting through these you know the huge issues, these meteorites smashing into Earth around them that are just fragments of this bigger one coming, and it's still enough to wipe out entire cities. And everyone's chaotic. You've got um, people trying to steal children and palm them off as their own so they can get into these bunkers and stuff. And I liked it because everything that happens really affects the characters. Like they're genuinely shaken, and it has a tangible mm. impact on the stuff that Joe Butler has to do just to try and catch up with his family. He he is like completely broken by by what's happening and what he's seeing, and of course Scott Glenn is in it. Good. Um, so yeah, it's just a really good. It's a really good um, end of the world movie that doesn't get too bogged down in the science. It's more of like a, a road movie of them just trying to through this absolute mayhem, just trying to um, find each other when they've got no means of communication between them. And mm. I liked it. It's good. It's a good solid film. What's that on? That was on. Oh my god! What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Um, you you talk about Dirty Harry too, and and I'll find out. Okay, all right. Um, I am intrigued by Greenland. Uh, I've heard from others that they didn't enjoy it that much, but it sounds like you did enjoy it more than them. It's on Netflix, I think. Yeah. Um, oh no, sorry, it's on Amazon. Oh okay. <laughs> I'm, no, I didn't. Um, I, again, I think it's yeah. because I thought it would be. Um, I thought it would just be like lots of massive base. You know my rule of nothing bigger than a shed exploding, and I thought it would just be huge, and him like hang, hanging off buildings and jumping skyscrapers yeah, and stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not that at all. It, it's right. much more. It's much more a family story. Okay, I, I, I'm not the biggest Gerald Butler fan, but I may check this out. Yeah, I, I like. I've only ever seen him in I think three hundred. I, I haven't really seen him in much else. Um, Magnum Force. This was made in nineteen seventy three. 
uh, and it is the sequel to Dirty Harry. Natch. It was written two years, two years later as well. That's quite a punchy. Uh... Yeah. It was written by John Milius and Michael Caimino. Um, now, John Millius is, I guess he's best known for Red Dawn. And Michael Camino was, uh, well, he would go on to do The Deer Hunter, um, which is obviously a bit of a classic. Um, is that the Heaven's Gate guy as well, Michael Camino? Yeah, yeah. I like Heaven's Gate, by the way. I've never seen it. I just, that, that's it's I four hours it. long, but it is, it's very impressive. It's like a super epic Western, really. And it's just really sumptuous. Only it's known for being a film which, uh possibly was one of the films that killed the auto movement of the 70s basically where they stopped giving tons of money to interesting artists and started giving tons of money to franchise filmmakers who are willing to make films under 90 minutes but yes um anyway but yeah so it's interesting it's got those two behind it and um so this one is about um it's it's about these basically vigilante murders that are happening in San Francisco again. Um, it, it what it looks like is a, a lone wolf maniac cop going around killing people. It, it starts off with um, basically this obviously guilty uh, mob boss being released on a technicality, and this maniac cop like uh, follows him, follows him in his car tends to arrest him and then just guns him down so and that's essentially what they're kind of um what this um vigilante or vigilantes uh motivation is is to get uh re um sort of serve up real justice shall we say where the system has failed that's the idea and obviously we can't have any of that on dirty harry's watch because um so yeah, he he teams up with um, uh, this time a different partner, uh, the black guy from RoboCop from the boardroom, um, and there's also he's, there's a lieutenant played by Hal Holbrook, good, and mm-hmm. they are basically have to catch the monster or monsters. Didn't he die recently, Hal Holbrook? He might have done, yeah. Oh bless him. Um, this is a monument to his passing, then. Yes. Um, I like how it, 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 there's a lot of um, banter between Clint Eastwood and Hal Holbrook in this film. Actually, I, I like how Clint Eastwood's constantly mocking Hal Holbrook, um, uh, and about about Hal Holbrook being like constantly complaining about Clint Eastwood just killing every perp he sees, basically, and. <laughs> and <laughs> Clint Eastwood mocking him for being a pussy, and it's just it's it's ridiculous, but quite funny. It's a really nasty film, actually. Like this is really brutal. Some of the some of the killings and stuff in this. Like there's one, um, this a pimp like force feeds drain on blocker down a prostitute's throat and stuff. It's just really nasty mm-hmm. stuff. I, I guess it's to create this kind of moral confusion in the audience because obviously you'll get you'll see a pimp doing something as cruel and evil as that and then they're blown away by the vigilante cop um without trial so judge jury and executioner type thing 
And so it's to, I guess it, you have these really, really brutal, unpleasant people so as to uh, make you think, well, okay, maybe they did deserve to die. It's a little bit rich, all of it, considering the fact that Dirty Harry's whole, <laughs> his whole method of catching criminals is just going up to them and shooting them with a magnum. But, you know, so it's a bit rich that he should be coming along saying, oh, no, that's a bit naughty. But anyway. How does he get the bullets in an ice cream? Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll edit that out. Or will I? <laughs> I won't. I, I won't. <laughs> I can't copy that. Um, um, like, there's there's a few bizarre moments in the script. Like, when Clint Eastwood's neighbour, uh, this much younger Asian woman, just suddenly turns up next, uh, like at his door and just basically asks to sleep with him because she's really intrigued by him. <laughs> And I thought, I thought, all right, this is just part of the plot. There's some, you know, he's being, he's being seduced as, you know, as part of some scheme or something. But no, she just literally wants to sleep with him all the time. That's it. It's, it was bizarre. So I don't, there's some weird little digressions. Um, I like how in this, Harry knows who the killer is early on. So obviously we do as well. But it's a question of proving himself correct. So... It's not so much about the drama of like, oh, how do we track him down? It's more how I know it's him. How do I convince other people that it's him? There's a so the and the nature of who the killer or killers are means that Harry will be in contact with them quite a bit, direct physical like and verbal contact with them. So it means you do get some quite cool sh- scenes where. He knows and they think they're wondering if he knows sort of thing. So there's some good tension scenes um, between the uh, between Harry and the bad guys. So that's cool. Um, It's a little bit languid compared with the first film. It's not quite as fast moving. I think it's longer. At least it felt longer. It it breaks the two hour barrier. And Mm. and how long is the first film? Is that a 90 minute or is it? Well, it felt fast. The first film. I'm not sure it is a 90 minute, but it felt much swifter. Um, yeah, so it, it can, it does become a little bit of a trudge towards the end. And it's, and it's already clear from this film that the, the grounded, the essentially grounded nature of the first film is slipping away and the situations are getting more far fetched. There's a few more like comedy asides. It doesn't quite have the moody midnight atmosphere of the first film, which I really liked. And also the villain isn't quite as interesting. Um, although there is a car chase in this one, which even includes like crates of vegetables being smashed up. So that's something you didn't get in the first film. And I will say it definitely does have a theme, not a musical theme, but uh, as in a, uh, a narrative theme, because I kept wondering, I wonder why, why is Harry keeps saying this line over and over again? Um, know your limitations. He says this to people all the time. He says, know your limitations. And I I realise that he's talking about the role of the cop in the system because he says himself, he doesn't agree with the system entirely, but he will die to uphold it until something better comes along. And so his issue with this vigilante squad is that they are vigilantes, basically, the very definition of operating outside the system. And so he 
and he believes in the system, even if he doesn't believe in the way it operates all the time. So, and when you operate outside of the accepted sort of moral consensus, you you risk becoming a fascist enforcer. And I think it's that last thing, um, this vigilantism becoming fascist enforcer, that kind of self-reflection is something which is lacking, for example, in most modern comic book movies. And yes, the only thing I will say is it is a bit ironic, given Harry's penchant for breaking protocol, because this is this is a man who resolve a hostage situation in a shop by literally driving his car through the front window to resolve it. That's what he does now. So I'm not sure he can really talk to people about <laughs> sticking to the rules, but, but it, like the point is there. It's an interesting point and it sticks to that theme, which is good. Uh, and it makes it an interesting film and a, and a, and a worthy sequel, I would say. Yeah, I'm gonna. Are these all on a certain channel, by the way, or have you got them on Blu-ray from Germany? I paid for them with money. <laughs> How much? Unbelievably sickening. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, um, where though? Did you? Oh, you bought the Blu-rays? No, I got I the Prime um, and well, other places. Cool. I'll have to have a look because yeah. I am I am feeling this because um, yeah. yeah. Been... Well, you know. We'll, We'll see whether it maintains the quality. You, I am keen. You talking about that that moment in the film where someone knocks on the door and just shags him because she's just intrigued by yeah. him. Um, it remind. No, it's not the same thing, but I. It's something that sticks in my mind. Is was it a works like party thing? And I was stood outside, like on my phone or something, and this quite pretty woman came up to me. Who was about ten years older than me at the time, and said, "Oh hi," and she sort of made small chat, and I was just, I had no idea who she was. And then she said, "Oh, can you do me a favor?" can you kiss me before my husband comes out? And mm-hmm. I thought, uh, and as I was sort of thinking, what? This bloke came out and he was about six foot two. So it's quite lucky I didn't kiss her. <laughs> and and uh, he just said, oh mate, has she asked you to kiss her? <laughs> and I said, what? And, and then he said, I wish you'd stop doing this. And then she said, oh, sorry. And she seemed sober. And then he just like dragged her off. And I thought, that doesn't seem like a particularly stable relationship, really. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that he was like eye rolling and typical. Oh, here she goes again. Like, so, trying to cheat on me openly in front of, like, just in the next in room, of, in front and not, in, not just in front, of, in front of me, in front of my entire work colleagues as well. Um, so yeah, that's just what popped in my head. Is that yeah? These are films that I. So that was Magnum Force. That's that the second one. Magnum Force, yes. Um, well, this next one from me is a film that I know you didn't like as much as I did, and that is John Claude Van Damme's 1995 outing, Sudden Death, um, starring Powers Booth as well. Now, this was released it's the, by Peter Hyams, so it's the director of Time Cop, which is very much looked at that is the height of John Claude Van Damme's career, probably around the same, you know, as a Universal Soldier. And it's before the one he directed with and uh, played with Roger Moore in The Quest. Which I remember from my teens as, as being disappointing, but it is one I am going to rewatch. So I know that you found this boring, right? A little bit dull, yeah. But I think, again, we have to be careful with expectations here because I put this on and I thought, right, this is effectively what struck me as a diehard ripoff, right? It's, um, it's John Claude Van Damme uh, as a, uh, well, in a, in, a, in a situation, in this case, in an ice rink in a stadium, and there's bombs everywhere, and he's trying to save it. And he's just bumbling around, not really prepared for the situation, 
but it's very much a, there's a lot of similarities to Die Hard, so I assumed it would just be pretty flat. It's two hours long, which was shocking. But so the the, the plot is that John claude Van Damme, the introduction sequence, he is a fireman. And he is trapped under a load of debris in a burning house holding a child and he's screaming. He's got a really weird shout. Um, it's a really raspy voice when he shouts, John claude Van Damme, oddly. But anyway, he's got this girl that is collapsed with him and he's shouting for his uh, his colleagues to come and rescue them. But they get there just after the ceiling collapses on them. And by the time they've dug him out, the girl has passed away and he's just been cradling her in his arms for an indefinite amount of time. And it completely devastates him. The film cuts forward two years and he has got tickets he's now a security guard uh, or a fire marshal at a baseball stadium and uh, sorry uh, an ice hockey rink and he is taking his two children to go and see this this ice hockey match that he's working at um and he's there with his estranged wife and her partner who's the stepdad to the kids and it's at this point that i thought there may be something more to the film right because when they rock up and john claude van damme's clearly just like very um timid and kind of a little bit shy and says oh i'm just going to take the kids to a an ice you know this ice hockey thing i managed to get tickets to and his wife says oh you know you're not supposed to just drop up unannounced and he's like oh i know i just thought i'd treat them and and then she says are you working there and the kids are like oh daddy you a fireman again and he's like oh no no i'm just 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 working there you know for this and the the parents like this new stepdad they're really like oddly supportive that he's getting back on his feet and it's like mm. a really nice moment of lightness of touch where he's like oh congratulations by the way you just get and he's like yeah yeah thanks anyway so i was like oh that's quite nice actually i didn't expect that in like a you know a throwaway what i assumed was a martial arts film full of explosions mm. that doesn't quite carry through to the rest of the film <laughs> so powers booth rocks up passed away bless him and he, uh, he is there and he is just basically a, a dude in a suit who is just uh, the mastermind behind this whole thing he's demanding a ridiculous amount of money from the government or otherwise he's going to shoot a hostage in this vip booth he's uh, taken over every quarter of the match until the end of it when he's going to blow up the whole stadium and and uh, John Claude Van Damme is in there working behind the scenes and behind the gantry and stuff to try and uh, defuse these bombs and rescue his two children who are uh, sorry his daughter who's in the VIP booth with Powers Booth. <laughs> um, I like I liked a lot of this film. Like it's very the story is extremely typical. Like it literally just follows the beats you think it's going to follow. But mm. I like how in the fight scenes they're quite nicely clumsy because I assumed he would just stop pulling out the martial arts kicks, but he, although he's obviously ripped when he gets into a fight, he does kind of win through luck through like using the environment and kind of chancing his way through it. And I, I did like that aspect of it. Powers booth is quite funny because he's really hamming it up and he is genuinely a threat because he can ham it up. Powers booth. <laughs> he's got the voice for it as well. Yeah. He is just like he will just everything he says he just follows through and just kills people threatening children and stuff he's, and it is so you are, you know he's a genuine threat he's not doing this and he's going to back out last minute um, I look at you Ed Harris in the Rock <sighs> um, so yeah it, it, that's quite and he is quite funny like there's a bit where he's just drinking wine and all these women are like crying and, and everyone's just panicking and he's like oh this is a this is a pesky young number but young almost impetuous and it's just funny it's just so over the top um and yeah and it's just fun it's this this sort of um the set pieces are fun john claude van damme's plan but right, his plan to to get to to how he's going to like 
rescue everyone in that VIP booth is preposterous, right? He, his plan is, and this is his plan in his head that he's worked out. It's not something he's like lucked through at the end and he's just, this has just happened. This is his plan is to make a flower jar filled with explosives using his obviously like fireman's knowledge. First thing they teach you is how to make homemade bombs. And he tie, he ties it to his waist on like a clip, right? And then he's just just goes through these ridiculous scenarios where he's like rolling around, jumping from place to place to get to the top of the stadium. And I'm thinking that is a glass jar. That is a glass jar on dangling off your hip and you're jumping around getting into fist fights. It could just smash and blow up any point. And he's planning to get to the top of the stadium and then leap across the gantry from the huge lights that dang down on these power cables, leap across, then throw the bomb so it blows up like the roof of the thing and then drop in and somehow take out everyone in there, leaving all the hostages unarmed. <laughs> it is unbelievable. Um, but there was, there's, a, there's a really funny moment in this film as well where he gets caught defusing a bomb by one of the henchmen. And he turns around with his arms up and he's holding C4, the C4 in his hand. And j- just, I'm assuming everyone knows this, but C4 is like, it's got to be like electronically charged to go off. You can't just shoot it. It won't just explode. So he's holding it in his hand and he turns around. This guy's pointing an Uzi at him and he says, I'm just warning you that if you shoot me, you're going to kill us both because I'm holding mm-hmm. C4. And if you shoot me, it's going to go off. And the guy says, no, I'm the person who plant- planted that explosive. And I know I can just shoot you. It's not going to go off. And John claude Van Damme is like, Oh. And then the the and then he manages to like kill the guy. And as he stands up holding the C4 again, someone else, another henchman, comes out behind him and John Claude Van Damme turns round and just like starts saying the same thing. And the guy interrupts him and says, No, I heard you talking to the other bloke. And he's like, oh. and, and, and it was it's a really funny moment. Um yeah, I it's a silly it's it's you know I think I enjoyed it as much as I did because I was prepared for something far worse. And I'm trying, much like I'm doing with Don the Dragon Wilson in another aspect of my life, I'm trying to find that golden moment when it turns to trash. These are all films in the mid to late 90s that are filmed on location with budgets. And I'm trying to find that tipping point when basically starts making stuff like Legionnaire. So, yeah, um, or The Mm. Shepherd. So, yeah, Sudden Death, I thought it was a really good trashy action um, film from the 90s that people may have overlooked because it is it is good it is a good uh, action film okay i need to, maybe i need to give it another go what um where where can i it's got to be on prime isn't it you know it's on prime baby know you it's know it's prime. on prime yeah um how, how many films do you have to go maybe One, two three four five six okay maybe you want to just slip in another one there Okay, okay then. Well, in that case, we'll talk about Bridge of Dragons um, from. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna just let me just find this is Bridge of Dragons, and this stars Dolph Lundgren and um, Carrie Hiro- Hiroyuki Tagawa. I always forget his name. This is a film. When directed, was this made? I'm, I'm just just finding out now because it's the one thing I didn't make a note of in my notes. Uh, is it? I'm assuming it's 1999. That is good. Yeah, okay. 1999. The mid period. Dolph. Okay. So this is directed by Isaac Florentine, who does a lot of work now with Scott Adkins, but I didn't realize is the man who also directed uh, Cold Harvest with Gary Daniels, right? Ooh. And the reason I thought, hang on, I think this is from the same director, is because every time anyone moves, even if they're just moving a pen in their hand or flipping open their passport, there is a whip sound. And every time anyone gets punched or kicked, 
bags of flour fly everywhere. And I thought, yeah, this is very much Isaac Florentine's his touch. Um, so this is a film, right, that is set in a... There's literally a title card at the start that just says, uh, it's, po- it's post-apocalyptic, right, so don't, don't worry about what people are wearing. And then the film starts. And I reckon the reason they say it's post-apocalyptic is because Isaac Florentine went into the prop warehouse and said, right, what have we got? I'm chucking it all in. Because you've got people in this with, like, 90s, um, like, Navy SEAL uniforms. You've got people in Nazi uniforms. You've got German guns. You've got Bren guns. You've got people in medieval clothing with those conical helmets on. No one cares. Dolph Lundgren is wearing, like, 90s kind of, well, sort of Vietnam-era camo stuff with an archery glove and a single skateboarding elbow pad. And I'm like, it's just so what? That makes no bearing in anything. He's just got this ridiculous mishmash of stuff. So the film kicks off. He's bloody sick and tired of hitting his funny bone, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, on that one arm. Um, so the, the film kicks off, and there's uh, it set again. I missed the title card originally, so I was like, what? Is, I I had to like look online. And think, oh, it's supposed to look at what? Because it's like I thought, is it filmed in Turkey? It, it what's happening? So it's. Takari Hiroyuki Tagawa plays this maniacal general, obviously dressed in World War II Japanese regalia, um, who is trying to marry this princess. So he has a, <coughs> pardon me, a genuine uh, link to be the king of this of this the post-apocalyptic kingdom. Um, and I don't really know why, because he could literally just kill her. Because he obviously doesn't love her. There's one point where <laughs> this woman, this like beautiful um, Asian princess, is in this room saying to her, a woman who literally I assumed was from EastEnders, just talking in like a really broad London accent, who is her maid, and obviously dressed as a monk for some reason. Um, she's saying, "Oh come on, you know, you're not you're, all men can be tough. You you'll learn to love him. I know it's not ideal, but you you know." I didn't love my husband when I was forced to marry him and you get used to it. And you, I'm sure, I'm sure that there, a love will blossom between you. And and the princess is like, ah, I don't know too much about that. And as she finishes talking, Kari Hiroki Tagawa walks in, opens the door, closes it behind him, struts over, slaps her in the face as hard as he can. And then turns around and just shuts the door behind him and walks out. And I thought, ah, I... <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's built on a solid foundation, this marriage. Um, so she, there's a scene at the start where Dolph Lundgren is in this like tent, and they're doing this kind of uh, betting on these fights where you put on, it looks like a paintball mask, and you have a bow staff, and you stand on these tree stumps on, above this mud, and you have to hit each other off, and whoever falls off, it's like something from Gladiators, whoever falls off, the other person gets the money, and it's quite clear the princess is going there undercover, and she almost beats Dolph Lundgren and she's clearly an extremely capable fighter and martial artist and they lock eyes that's how he recognizes her later on when she goes on the run from this marriage he sent a tracker down and then they fall in love and blah 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 I thought obviously she's going to be like the side she's obviously a very capable martial artist nope the rest of the film just a typical damsel in distress okay so why did we see how capable she was um the music is odd in this. It's a really, I honestly thought at one point they were playing the theme from Goldeneye on the N64. Is that? <laughs> and it's just bizarre music. Um, so you, it's, it's a very odd film because it's, it's not boring because there's always something to see. You're always looking at someone saying, why are they wearing a dress? Why are they wearing like, like Persian dresses? And why is that look wearing like plays? And it is just looking at like what era these people are supposed to be from as they run around this forest in Turkey or whatever it is. Um, 
it's not good, but it's fun and it's just ridiculous and it's cheap. And every time anyone moves, even someone puts a fag in their mouth and dust flying everywhere. Good. Isaac Florentine is his best. Yeah. We need to investigate Isaac Florentine more. What's his filmography looking like? Well, he does a lot of stuff with Scott Adkins and it's kind of fine, fine, fine average martial arts films but i think we need to go back to the we need to go back to the 80s and 90s because i get the impression that like the further on in his career he hit that thing where the budgets dropped and eventually it's just people fighting on industrial estates in romania yeah so we need to go back for the gold but i am fully like cold harvest is preposterous fun it's just like it's so theatrical so So, yeah um gary daniel's finest hour so um yeah, uh, I'm going to look into Isaac Florentine stuff. So yeah, that was uh, that's Bridge of Dragons, and it's uh, if if you like silly action films, tuck in. Right then, well, let's move on then to the Enforcer. Uh, this was made in 1976, and it starts off with a comely woman enticing men back to her shack, so that a man. Um, so that a man with feathered hair and no product can kill them basically and (laughs) so this one's about this group called the People's Revolutionary Strike Force who are essentially a group of robbers and killers and they've got access to rockets and these are the people that Harry's got to take down by this point, the formula is becoming a little bit absurd because Harry just seems to stumble upon major hostage incidents just while cruising <laughs> around the city. He'll just be driving along. You'll hear a gunshot and he'll go around the corner, step out of his vehicle and just walk in and just go blazing into the situation. And once again, Harry's bosses are saying they've had enough of his reckless antics. He's off the leash. And of course, once again, he'll prove that his tactics get shit done. So, um, so screw you and your bureaucracy and <laughs> protocol. Um, yeah, All you this need time, is six bullets and a brown suit. <laughs> he, um, this time he's got another unwanted partner and this, it's a, a pencil pushing woman. Um, and there's really awkward forced sexual tension between them, of course. And it occurred to me that the, the romance is the least interesting and most predictable dynamic they could have chosen here. She she was quite praised for her performance. Um, and actually, Clint Eastwood was quite praised for, for including this supposedly strong woman in, in the cast. But she just looks like a school assistant with a gun. She's just completely out of her depth. But... Um, Anyway, so Harry and her have to track down the terrorists. Um, I think the the character of Dirty Harry is coming across. It's slowly changing at this point. So he comes across more like this curmudgeonly stick in the mud than a principal veteran, if you see what I mean. And the and it is becoming more and more absurd. And the more of these you watch, the more you realised you realize that they, these are, these films are the primary source of inspiration for the likes of police squad and the naked gun, because the stuff that happens, the kind of lines that come out of people's mouths, it's pure naked gun, um, which is fine. And it, it does it actually makes naked gun even funnier because you can see where it was coming from. Um, 
it, this one seems almost like a reaction to the sheer brutality of the second film because it's much more comedic in tone and much less nasty. Um, and the, the violence is more comedic. Um, like he, like he's chasing a perp and he shoots them in the back of the balls while they're running upstairs. <laughs> Classic Dirty Harry slapstick. Um, <laughs> it it kind of looks like a, it's directed by someone called James Fargo, who I, I, you know, just seems like a journeyman director. It looks very much like a TV show. Uh, far cry from the first two films, which were very cinematic and atmospheric. This one looks like a TV show, flat lighting, studio sets, lots of static medium shots, uh, transitioning to close up. There isn't much style. It's got this preposterous, skittering jazz score. I don't think the music is by Lalo Schifrin in this one, um, but I can check that yeah it's by someone else it's called by jerry fielding so it's a different different composer um there's a pretty cringeworthy scene with um a group of black militants where uh, harry and his partner go in there and there's lots of like hey honky type language and oh if it ain't the fuzz type comments mm. and plus there's this like harry goes uh, out the back to question someone and leaves the woman in there and there's this tacit suggestion that all of these black men are, are a sexual threat to this woman for no particular reason it's not really done for comedy it's just literally done as a a rather uncomfortable um stereotype of uh, sexually aggressive black men so that was an unpleasant scene um the the most interesting subplot involves this ambitious and conniving captain who's using Harry and his partner to further his own career. Um, for example, the fact that he's this captain is the one that put the woman um, under um, Dirty Harry's mentorship sort of thing, because he felt that it would be a good PR move sort of thing. So, um, and it made me realize that, um, in a way, the TV series Bosch, uh, with the great Titus Welliver, is the spiritual successor, in a way, to the Dirty Harry series, where, insofar as you you see the street-level work, but you're, it also runs concurrent to the higher-level political machinations above it. It's obviously much less sophisticated here, because there's much less time to explore that stuff, but it was it's just really an excuse to say... Everyone should watch Bosch, really. Um, but, yeah, and then he, there isn't really much to distinguish this this film. I mean, it just, it's quite forgettable, really, other than there is, the ending does take place on Alcatraz Island, so that's kind of distinctive. But the problem is that the bad guys just aren't that interesting. And this is something that becomes apparent as you watch the Dirty Harry films, that it it depends heavily on how interesting the bad guys are. And the bad guys here just really aren't interesting at all. They're robbers posing as political revolutionaries. A bit like Die Hard in that way, I suppose, but not as interesting. So like The Enforcer that. is definitely the weakest of the films so far and a, quite a steep step down from one and two. I really like how, you know, clearly she goes into the script reading claps as Anza says right then. What's going on? This is the third film. We're going to mix things up a little bit. 
and then one of the producers says, yes, well, we're obviously going to add a lot more slapstick comedy in this one. So <laughs> instead of shooting everyone in the face, you're going to shoot them in the bollocks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, really neat, <laughs> that's that's right. End of the meeting. Note that down. I'll see you tomorrow on set. Um, yeah, it's yeah that does. Uh, so this this could be the the moment when if I am actually going to be making purchases of these films, then I may skip yeah. this one because yes. I'm and the you good could thing quite is, easily skip. Yes, I think as well with these, unlike the Alien. Well, actually, you, with Alien and the Rocky, the the other series you've talked through, um, it's it, it's like you have to have some sort of through line. But with Dirty Harry, it sounds like the films could just be standalone. So I, yeah. I, I'll watch one, two, Definitely. skip three so far. From what you said, I'll skip three so far. Yes. Yeah, I I would agree with that, and and like you say, there's really no reason to concern yourself with the overarching uh, plot because none of the characters, basically, other than well, Harry himself and the police chief, maybe. Um, other than that, they there isn't really any continuity at all. It's very episodic. Before before I talk about for me leg, dare I say. We're up the next one, which is um, a two-minuter. I, okay. I just uh, did some uh, research as you were talking then, because I thought it was Hal Holbrook in Blind Date, the 1984 film with um, Kim Basinger and Bruce Willis, which is one of my f- favourite comedy scenes in that film. But it's not. It's actually William Daniels who did the voice of Kit in Knight Rider. And it's a scene where... Bruce Willis is just obviously just in total tatters trying to break into this like palatial country mansion owned by mm. William Daniels. It was a judge or something. And he's just, William Daniels is just like casually just golfing in his garden, like hitting, hitting golf balls into these trees. And he, he hits one and it goes into a tree and you just hear, ah! And then Bruce Willis falls out and lands on his head and then like gets up, stumbles around really dazed and then like, tries to climb up the tree, falls again, gives up, screams and then just runs further into the tree line as Willem Daniels is just looking right at him. And it just tickles me because it's the thought that like he thinks he's got away without being seen. So I just remember, thank you for reminding me of that absolutely glorious bit of um, physical comedy. The next yes. film. The next film that I want to talk about very briefly is 2018's Extinction, starring Michael Pena. Um, uh, in this film, it should be Michael, how much did they pay you? Uh, are, mm. are they paying you? Uh, Michael, how much mm. are they paying you? Paying you? How much are they paying you? This is I, this. I, I watched this blindly, mainly because I realised that I hadn't seen Michael Pena. As the star in a film, he's always been like in the films I've seen, like Ant Man and the Wash, he's always been a comedic sidekick. So I thought, oh, I'll, you know, yes, yes. I'll give it a goosey. Um, as the film was, you know, going through the initial um, credit sequences, I noticed on Wikipedia through my extensive research that this was originally scheduled for a theatrical release in January 2018 by Universal, pulled, and then Netflix bought it and just released it through Netflix. I was like, when people pull a film, assuming they make no money from it, which is clearly cost a fortune, you know it's bad. So um, this is a film uh, that stars Michael Pena as a, as a father. He works in this factory, this quite bland factory, doing a pretty unspecified job. And his, his wife is played by Lizzie Kaplan. They've got two children. And he has these visions, visions of an alien invasion. And he sort of shakes them off and his wife keeps on telling him to go to a doctor. And he's it's so funny how he just doesn't go to a doctor. There's no, he, he's, 
He's, he has these visions where he literally will like black out and wake up hours later. Like after his, he'll like be like screwing something in and work. He'll have a vision of like an alien invasion, like shooting his kids, and he'll sort of snap back to reality. And it'll be almost a full day later. Clearly, a really serious problem that needs medical assistance. And he'll go home, and his wife will say, "So did you go to the doctor?" And he'll say, "No." And then, why are you so late? I blacked out in work for hours. <laughs> and this one bit where he literally is sat, he's like saying to his wife, right, I'm going to the doctor's. And he'll sit in the doctor's office and then he'll just, she'll say, right, we're ready to see you. And he'll just walk out and go home. And his wife will say, so what happened to the doctor's? And he'll say, I went in the waiting room and oh, I just walked out. I just came home. I said, oh, God's sake. Um, so, <laughs> so that's funny. Not supposed to be. But what actually happens is this alien invasion does take place. And, you know, they, they land it and they're just just literally just churning down people in the streets. And the vast majority of the film is uh, Michael Pena and his family trying to survive, trying to get to this his factory because he says there's loads of there's loads of really secure floors underground. We need to get to. That's the only safe place. Now, it is a film that only kept my interest up because, again, every building's exploding people jumping from gantry to gantry and lots of gunshots and stuff the alien designs are pretty um and interesting they just look quite insectoid although all all clearly dudes in suits because it's just it's just like four-limbed aliens holding guns you're like it just looks like a bloke in a suit that is anyway um i thought well there's obviously got to be something in this there's like because his his visions of this alien invasion have been thus far unexplained and it can't just be they get to the factory and that's the film so i was i was watching it and it was kind of boring despite ever, all the things that were going on but i was thinking there's going to be some sort of reveal or twist or something <laughs> that's going to like they're going to be like oh right okay and it is the first of two films this week where you said about um is there a mid-film twist that saves it this one does not. This one very clearly it says, "Oh, actually, you thought it was this, but it's this," and that's it. And then it just sort of limply slinks away back into the shadows. And it's like, right. So I'm watching a boring film that has got a really stupid twist, and then there's another twenty minutes of just uh, like, like narration over the top, like hoping for a better future. What? Mm-hmm. Um. So I was really disappointed by this and by looking at the reviews so is everyone else um it just it's just not very good it's a really flat film and i can see why they maybe thought oh, maybe we shouldn't release this oh, that's disappointing yeah uh it sounds deeply mediocre yeah that is extinction on netflix and it's not it, it's not one I'd it, recommend. it sounds like netflix just bought that up just to flesh out their kind of um release lineup yeah the release lineup i I guess because with netflix it must be a lot a big part of it must be kind of almost ticking boxes uh like oh do we this this month do we have x amount of sci-fi movies to appeal to this demographic do we have x amount of comedies etc so it's like ah well we'll buy that up at a bargain basement price and (laughs) it's got a atmospheric poster it sounds like it's the kind of title where you read it and it's like isn't there another film called that is that have i seen that let's put it on you're like (laughs) 
you're basically tricked into watching it out of mild curiosity about whether you've seen it before. Bloody hell. It's a real, that's, that's how the real classics are made. <laughs> that's how, that's what gets me watching Air Force One twice. <laughs> I am that demographic. Yeah. Um, I, Air Force One is one that I've watched. I, it, it's, I obviously w- try watching it often enough that <laughs> Netflix or Prime, whatever it's on, will remember where I am. And when I go to watch it, I see, oh, resume. I, I don't remember. I started watching it. So I'll watch another chunk of it and then and then think, ah, oh, it's a bit average, isn't it? Let's just move on to something else. And then they go back to it a bit later and it's like, oh, resume. Oh, okay. Oh, and, and then, oh no, no, I've done this before. Right. Okay. Firewall. Resume. Oh. <laughs> I fancy a horror film. What lies beneath? Resume. Um, uh, right. So, not <laughs> not recommended. Okay. Um, do you want to do? An, have you got any more two minutes? You can just slip in there. Okay. Uh, the next one on my list is one I was really looking forward to talking about, but that's that's not going to be two minutes. I, okay. I can do I can do a two minute actually. Um, I've only yes. got four left, which is good. So this okay. is Passengers, not that one. This is a film. That stars Patrick Wilson and Anne Hathaway. You know why I watched this film, and it is not because of Anne Hathaway. Um, or as I found out while doing my extensive, exhaustive research of this film, she likes to be called Annie Hathaway. But I'm going to call her Anne Hathaway because that's her name. Um, yeah, Patrick Wilson's in this. And again, Rupert, I'm just going to come straight out of the gate and say, 2008, this is not a film saved by its twist. Um, the, the, the plot is that... Patrick Wilson and five or six other passengers are the only survivors of this train crash into the bay in New York or whatever it is. Actually, I think it might be Pittsburgh. Anyway, and Anne Hathaway is a doctor that is that has been assigned to um, help them deal with their post-traumatic stress. And she is terrible at her job. That is the film, by the way. That is the plot. And okay. she is awful, awful at her job. Um, she'll just like sit in these meetings and say, oh, so what's happening then? And someone says, oh, I'm just having trouble, real trouble sleeping. She's like, oh, should I just give you a lot of sleeping tablets? N- no. Oh, okay. Anyone else having any trouble? Any- <laughs> like, well, I would do a better job than this of you. Um, and so all the other people in this meeting, they start disappearing. And it's because we see David Morse hanging <sighs> around the meetings and um he always looks shady he always looks like he's about to cry i think is what you meant to say even when um, he was jody foster's dad he looked shady in contact i'm um, gonna be really so, really soft like soft and gentle father figure and he just looked like a, a hulking henchman um yeah he is kind of like he's got like broad of shoulders and he was he was all like yeah. a sad face it looks like was he's it had him his nose broken once or twice even in the crossing guard um Otherwise known I, as the lollipop man. I uh I'm not going to say what the, the spoiler is, right? What the what the twist is. Okay. But I would say that if you went on Wikipedia and typed in Passengers 2008 film and looked at the poster for it, I reckon you could probably work out what's gonna happen. Okay. Um just based on the opacity of some of the characters. <laughs> so um so yes, uh, the film rocks. You're doing it. I can hear you doing it. Um, 
Yeah, so the film is just filled with irritating characters. You've got people who, you know, she's there to help and they'll just lose their tempers and wander off, which happens a lot. She starts falling in love with Patrick Wilson and he is just, will just flit between being really, really jokey and flirtatious with a sudden, um, sudden uh, explosions of like rage where he'll punch holes in walls and just shout at dogs. And, and he's constantly like teasing her uh, and it, like he'll say, Oh, come up on the roof. You know, he's on the roof of this ridiculous warehouse he works at, he lives at. And she'll say, oh, I've got a fear of heights. And he'll like force her to climb up on the top. And then he'll pretend to just walk off the edge and kill himself. But really, he's just gone on like a little bit of roof below it. And and then there's a bit where they, he says, Oh, do you want to come up um, on my boat and we'll just have like a romantic picnic in the ocean? She's like, Oh, that'd be lovely. And then he gets on the boat, says, I'm just nicking this. It's not really mine. And she's, We shouldn't really be doing this. And then he jumps into the ocean and pretends to drown. So she jumps in to save him and he sort of laughs at her and says, Oh, look at what you've got. And you're like, what? You just seem like a tosser. Um, like a really irritating tosser and she's Nasty completely falling in love with you yeah so th- the film is that it's this like really kind of broken romantic comedy that doesn't really work with some vague background mysteries going on and then and then the twist happens and it's just like oh okay and then the film ends so hmm. it's boring a boring film just looking at this poster so Anne Hathaway is quite bold and she's wearing a black outfit in the middle Yes, yes. The people in the background, including Patrick Wilson and David Morse, look faint and almost spectral, if you like. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, I'll leave that with you. I mean, I don't want to give away the twist, you know. Uh, I'm just, you uh, know, I'm just objectively reporting the facts. <laughs> so, yeah, it is, uh, it is ridiculous, and it's also a film that doesn't really. When it ended, and I thought back over certain scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that doesn't even hold up to its own internal logic. You know, it's the problem of, it's the problem of when you see people talking to each other, when the main character isn't there and you think Uh you would not in, in this world, in this situation, you would not be talking like that. Why are you keeping up this pretense when there's no need for it? So yeah, it's, um, it's a very silly film that I would not recommend to anyone because it, it fails on like on a sci-fi level, on a mystery level, or there's no, no action in it. And it's, it's the romanticism in it is just full of irritating characters. So it's just mm. failure in all respects, really. Jeez. Okay. Um, well, in that case, um, where, where could we see that if you really wanted to? That was an Amazon Prime. Of course it is. Um <laughs> We're never going to get sponsorship from Amazon at this rate. I know we're not. Um, sudden impact. Dirty Harry is at it again. That is the genuine tagline, by the way. What? Dirty Harry is at it again? Yep. It just sounds like he's like setting fire to people's bins and running off. Yeah, he's at it. Oh, he's at it again, is he? Oh, bloody Dirty Harry. They're shooting people in the bollocks from behind. <laughs> you know what he's like? Um... <laughs> This is 1983, so quite a way afterwards, actually, yeah. Um, yeah 76 Clint, was the last one. Yeah, Clint Eastwood directs. Oh! The moment, like, the first shot is flying over the city at night. Good. Instant, just synth music with slap bass. Good. Oh, Lalo Schifrin, but, wow, he's he has developed from his original work. Um, <laughs> so... It starts off with uh, Harry's in court. Um, 
just observing. But basically, these charges are dismissed against a suspect in court because Harry didn't follow protocol. Believe it or not, he didn't follow protocol. This results in this person, this perpetrator going free. And at this point, I'm just thinking, you have never learned. You're in your 50s now, maybe. Yeah, probably in his 50s now. You never learn. You never follow protocol. I'm thinking you're just bad at your job. That's it. Anyway, there are situations in this film in particular where he could just, all he has to do is say, I am a policeman to calm things down. Instead, like there's a bit where he goes to like question this, um, these people in a garage, this woman in a garage and um, she owns the garage and her two sons are like her two burly sons are working there as well. And he goes to question her and this and he's quite aggressive with her and um the sons come up to him and say look have you got a problem etc you know quite reasonably trying to defend their their mum and instead of saying um no no problem i've i'm a policeman i'm just here to for an inquiry no he doesn't say that he just keeps telling them to shut the fuck up basically and he keeps saying it and then it just ends up in a massive fight he doesn't get any of the information he wants rubbish a rubbish cop so anyway <laughs> This is uh, also the film where we get the line, go ahead, make my day, which has surprised me, actually, because it's quite a famous line, go ahead, make my day. It's like, I didn't realise it took four films for that line to be written, but there you go. Um, it is, it's, it's, I'd say all this, it's, it's a good film. It's a return to the more noirish roots of the original film. And Harry is is meaner and more determined than the previous film where he just seemed a bit weary and grumpy, to be honest. Uh, There's kind of two plot lines which kind of meet in this one. In one of them, Harry accidentally, in inverted commas, kills a mob boss by gatecrashing the mob boss's daughter's wedding and harassing him into having a heart attack. Um, And thereafter, the mob is after him. He's shipped out by the captain to San Paolo to investigate a case and get rid of the heat. Basically, the captain's just trying to get him away from San Francisco because he's a, a, a walking disaster zone. Um, of course, as soon as he turns up in this small town, stumbles straight into an arm robbery, straight in there. Um, <laughs> right. The other the other kind of plot line which comes into contact with this is, um, and this is one of the reasons why it's, a better film than the last film is that it's this time it's a woman who was assaulted sexually assaulted with her younger sister at this fairground now mm. the sister is now catatonic so she just completely zombified basically and the other survivor the woman the main woman she is hunting down the culprits and murdering them and all of this stuff is just pure noir like she's a she's sort of this grace kelly type blonde and she's always shot in these stark shards of light in like inky darkness it's pretty cool and it does take a ridiculously long time for the two plot lines to actually coalesce which does give the film quite an aimless and fractured feeling for the first hour Mm. um yeah so part of the problem is with this is that you you feel no sympathy for the woman's victims. And on top of that, Harry doesn't know about it. 
So there's no moral ambiguity portrayed actually on the screen. It's literally like two different films happening at once uh, for a good long while. Um, thankfully, Pat Hingle rocks up as the Sam Paolo police chief um, who doesn't need a, quote, big city hotshot. Um, so unlike the previous film, romance is this time the most interesting part because Harry is a cop. And he's got no idea that the woman he's going to come into contact with is this vengeful murderer. So that makes it interesting. So the fact that they have a romance, the fact that Harry has no idea that she's going around murdering people, the uh, perpetrators of this hideous crime, makes it pretty interesting. And there's a lot more action in this film. Uh, there's there's a scene where Harry is pursued in his car by maniacs. And he actually... They literally throw Molotov cocktails into his car, so, <laughs> right? It's a, it is a tower of flame, and he just keeps driving. He can he's not stopping or thinking. He just keeps driving. It's just, Does it's he amazing. say, oh, "My premiums will go up"? <laughs> yeah. um, the action scenes are really contrived, and he constantly stumbles into situations, but they are quite fun, and they're more dynamic and imaginative than the previous film. So, there's an amusing chase sequence where Harry is takes control of a pensioner's bus and he's pursuing this guy on a really slow motor tricycle, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> Again, very naked gun esque. Um, it has a, these slapstick moments really don't seem like from you talking about, them, they really don't seem like they'd fit, but they do. do they, 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 they're, they're meant to be yes. funny. And they are funny. Yeah. For, okay. Yes. I would say, I would say so. By this point, it's very, it feels much more like a kind of silly 80s action film, if you see what I mean, which is okay with with noirish elements in it. It's got a pretty grisly but memorable final sequence in a fairground. It's almost like returning to the scene of the crime sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I, I'd say this is probably the best. I'd say this is the most enjoyable film in the series since the first one because it has a baddie with a clear and plausible motivation and it has some good action and it has a, a cool smoky dark atmosphere so i'd say this is the most enjoyable one since number one that's okay. sudden impact 1983 so yes recommended <clears throat> so so far i'm watching one two and four yes good good and that <laughs> Um, I, I, uh, this is the film I've been looking forward to talking about the most this week. Um, this is 1996 moving target starring Michael Dudikoff, um, who is a man that I only really know from the American Ninja series, uh, and, uh, where he was in one, two, four, because David Bradley took over in three. And also as an aside, everyone should watch the American Ninja series, the first three, because, um, Steve Jackson is amazing in everything he's in. He always elevates films. He's such a funny, just an amiable screen presence. And he's a much-missed man. So, moving target, 1996, Michael Dudikoff is wearing a puffer jacket. A puffer jacket that does him no favours. It's like this awful olive green military colour. And it's clearly too big for him in size of how like thick and puffy it is, but slightly too short as well, so it's impractical. Brilliant. He is a bounty hunter, just like his daddy. And he just goes around, uh, you know, just um, 
what's it called? A bail bondsman sort of thing where, you know, you go around and you just, um, you basically handcuff people with radiators and then tell the police where they are effectively appears right. to be his job. Um, <clears throat> this film is bewildering. It is fantastic. The thing is, it's more fun for me to talk about it than it is to watch it because huge chunks of it are so boring. But it is a film that just doesn't care. It's like no one involved cares apart from the sound, the man who plays the bass guitar on the soundtracks. It's just this fantastic wailing, like electric slap bass. Good. The editing is awful. Like the, the scenes, there's a scene at the start where to sort of introduce his character, I thought it because Michael Dudikoff, you know, following American Ninja is, is a martial artist. He didn't do martial arts before American Ninja, but he got into it around then. And that was what, like the, that was like a good 10 years before the, so he's had 10 years of martial arts training and he was already you know you could believe he was a believable martial artist in the first one so i thought this is going to be a lot of like martial arts cool hand-to-hand combat no um he he goes to this room right he finds out that the person he's trying to get back to the police is in room 31 in this tenement building and he turns up in his stupid puffer jacket that he doesn't take off the entire film and he realizes there's two rooms with the 31 on them so he knocks on one of them and it opens up and it's like this bdsm sex party going on in the hallway just behind the door and he gives this woman money to knock on the other door so she knocks on the door the guy always after opens the door and says oh why have you knocked and then michael dudikoff just like puts a gun to his face which is something he could have done anyway without involving this woman the editing is so bad that i thought i'd missed a scene he goes to raise his knuckles to the door there's no knocking sounds and it cuts and he is like the door's already open and she's already started talking and he's like a few steps back and I was like, what so there's this obviously they just didn't have enough footage and they've just pieced it together. So that happens throughout the whole film. Um, Michael Dudikoff, it just gets into these awful fist fights where he just gets beaten up all the time and kind of lucks his way through, but it's really clunky. There's a lot of comedy moments that really fall flat. Like there's a bit where he's go, running along a roof and he goes to jump down and he's like, oh, I can't be bothered. And then he just climbs down the ladder and it's only a few feet. And you think it's, just, it's not funny. It's just badly, badly edited, really. Um Jeez. The whole plot is preposterous because the main plot behind everything, what he gets dragged into, is that there's a he gets asked to find out where this Russian gangster is. And he finds out where he is, and when he gets there, he gets the guy gets shot in front of him and he gets framed for the killing. And mm-hmm. we know, we know it's because the guy who runs this this area of the mafia it's his son. His son is trying to usurp his power, right? That is so clear every time we see his son going against his father and like basically just being really mysterious. But the whole film plays it like it's a real mystery and we're not sure what's happening. But it's so basic and obvious that it's like, no, all this plot piecing together is uninteresting because we know who it is. Um, I thought that this was filmed in Russia because it uses so much stock footage at the start, the really grainy footage. <laughs> Of like really poor people in these really run down areas walking around just wearing in freezing cold weather, just look looking like it's a really like poverty stricken part of Russia in the seventies. No, it's filmed in Canada. I don't know where that footage came from and like why it's so run down. Um and there's uh Billy D. Williams is in this film. And just Good. he's just he just rocks up as he's basically the mayor, but he's just drunk all the time. 
and there's no there's no real reason for him to be in the film. It does contain one of the I think only pregnant sex scenes I've seen in a film though, um, where he just has sex with his pregnant wife, uh, and she's just clearly not pregnant. Just just wears baggy shirts, not pregnant. You specifically see her midriff, uh, and it's like she's right. just really really toned. Um, right. So the film is is bad, right? Okay. But, but the 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 two bits that really stood out to me are. The end of the film, Michael Dudikoff realizes who is behind all of this. It's the son of this this Russian mobster trying to usurp his father, which we've been aware of since before the credits rolled at the start. And he realizes because he sees a ring on his finger later on in the film, and this ring is quite chunky and silver and very you know quite memorable. And the camera zooms in on the ring. And then zooms in on Michael Dudikoff's shocked face as he realizes, oh my God, it's you behind this whole thing. And then I thought, hang on, because the only time you would have seen this man's hands <laughs> would have been at the start when you get thrown off a snowmobile and someone puts a gun to your head, clicks it, and he says, oh, you're lucky today, bounty hunter, and then walks off after they framed him for this murder at the start of this guy. I would have been in, uh, focusing uh, on his hands in that situation, definitely. Yeah, if his hands were not only gloved, but Michael Dudikoff was unconscious and face down in the snow. So he would not have seen his hands. That scene, by the way, where he gets thrown off a snowmobile and hits his head in a rock, he'd be dead. He would be dead on impact. Um, Yeah, and and the whole way that the plot, the plot like drip feed gets drip feed, drip fed to us in a kind of private detective fashion is because, and this, this this is the format of the film, Michael Dudikoff will find out some bit of information or go to this house or go to this hut or meet this person here. He will go there. The person will just punch him in the guts and knock him out. He will wake up tied to something. They'll punch him in the stomach whilst telling him things. (laughs) And then he'll kind of, they'll get distracted. He'll run off and then the scene will cut and it'll be him having just enough information to go somewhere else, get captured, beaten up as they tell him stuff and, and like just repeat ad nauseum. This ends, right? This goes, builds up to the end of the film, which is where all of these, these Russian mobsters are meeting up in this Alpine cabin. And I saw Michael Dudikoff hiding behind some trees, looking at this cabin as all the people in the film involved go in. I said to Faye, oh, I'm going to be two minutes. I'm just having a quick pee. I had a pee, I washed my hands. I opened the door and the credits were running. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, I, I said, oh, did I, what happened? And she said, oh, I don't know. I wasn't looking at the screen. I rebound it. It is so haphazard at the end of this film. He runs in, he runs in, right? And then it just kind of cuts to this, the main bad guy, the son of this mob boss. And he pulls a gun out to point it on Michael Dudikoff, but he pulls it out incorrectly and it kind of like it's like it hits the holster and kind of flips awkwardly in his hand so it's pointing down there's no gunshot sound someone jumps in front of michael dudikoff and then for some reason the guy who didn't fire the gun rolls backwards out of a window what (laughs) and then michael dudikoff jumps after him they roll in the snow for a bit and then the guy's just dead and then it just ends it's like what um, See, yeah, they really, really, they struggled just to get it, the footage together for this, didn't they? Yeah, they really just thought we've got entire scenes we've not filmed here. We're going to have to just release what we can. Um, well, at and, least they don't have the um, Galaxian problem where they didn't have a shot of her walking downstairs. They just reversed a shot of her walking upstairs. <laughs> That's a bad one. 
it is that level. It's that level of like absolute no budget movie. And of course, Michael Dudikoff just has no charisma, and he's got this kind of whispery child voice, so he's got no gravitas, and mm. yeah, he just comes across as a bad husband and a, and being someone who's awful at his job, who lucks into things. So, moving target, wow, film of the week. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, I'm just coming to my film of the week as well. So the Deadpool. Um, I take it moving targets on Prime. Yes. Um, the Deadpool. So this is the fifth film in the Dead Harry series. A full 15, uh, 17 years after the original, 1988, and we've gone from dark neo noir to absurd action thriller. It opens with some synthetic music and <laughs> at this point Lalo Schifrin just couldn't give a hoot about live instruments at all in this one there's a killer who's preying on celebrities including a film critic who resembles Pauline Kael who famously hated Clint Eastwood's films so there's a funny little easter egg there um so basically this the department wants to maximize harry's positive image with the public um but he could be more cooperative with the press and this pr assault starts and so they team harry up with a chinese american named al of course he knows martial arts and he's just really there to make tasteless jokes after each murder really um it this film isn't good but it does have some insane moments in it like quite early on is this bonkers neon smoked music video sequences sequence where this where a heroin addicted jim carrey just does this contorted dance to welcome to the jungle um and liam neeson shouts cut and he's like the video director um liam neeson sporting a kind of english australian accent don't know what that's going to be Bloody anyway hell. so liam neeson's this he's uh he's a director who directs like slasher horror movies really and liam and his and his crew have this jokey list called the deadpool where basically they predict which celebrity is going to die soonest um based on their lifestyle and that but what's happening is that the killer is actually making this happen and going through this list and killing them so harry's job is to track them down and like you hear the killer's voice so prime suspect liam neeson you know liam neeson's voice so well you know it's not him so which is a weird example of where you probably wouldn't not many people have known liam neeson at the time but now he's so well known and his voice is so well known that it almost gets him off the hook like because of familiarity anyway um this patricia clarkson plays a journalist and um that's harry's romance in this one he seems to forget all the women from his past but um and basically she's a very cynical journalist who reckons that he's um he's a nutcase uh, which frankly he is but um but when she gets to know him and she sees the sacrifice he makes she gets to see what cop work is like from his side so it is another pro cop movie but from a slightly different perspective this time um it is fascinating to see how this, say, in 1988, how this and the first film really reflect the style of their times, because it's gone from 
was essentially two tense hours of mood and menace to 90 brief minutes of thrills and stunts. And by this point, Harry is just straight up murdering people. It does have some vague and pretty shallow things to say about celebrity culture, everyone wanting their 15 minutes of fame, etc. Like this guy who wants to set himself on fire on TV. Um, It also leans into the moral panic of the time about video nasties um, with the suggestion that Liam Neeson, the director, that his films are influencing the killer in some way. The problem is it's over 70 minutes before we understand who the killer is and why they're doing it. And frankly, it's not that interesting. So that's not good. Uh, It isn't really a Dirty Harry film because the plot doesn't really reveal anything about Harry himself. It could just really be any cop chasing this killer. Did did he direct this one as well? No, I don't think so. Okay. I'm not sure who did. Let's, let's find Actually, out. Actually, you said he directed the last one, so I wondered if... Uh... Yeah, no, this is directed by Buddy Van Horn. <laughs> Fair enough. Mm, I don't know. He also did Any Which Way You Can, which is probably hasn't held up particularly well um but is it also another clint film um yeah there's one point by the way where harry asks um his partner al about this tattoo on his arm and i thought hang on did he always have that tattoo on his arm and i rewound the film to 20 minutes earlier when you see his partner in the gym with like a vest on obviously um and he did not have that tattoo <laughs> he did not have it it's just it's just shoddy you know there yeah, is famously a scene in this where harry and al are chased they're in the car they're being chased by a remote controlled car with a bomb in it right. so obviously it's like a little wee- like chasing like something something you get out of gta i'm sure it's been parodied in a grand theft auto game but what the thing you've got to remember by the way about this is of course this is radio controlled right radio controlled so that means the guy controlling it if they're chasing if they're driving away in their car he has to be within a certain distance of the remote controlled car with his aerial obviously so he is driving his car chasing them skidding around corners whilst he's got this thing in his hands like the control so he's controlling two cars at the same time chasing them down it's ridiculous it goes is it, is it goro from mortal Kombat doing that <laughs> um i think it's the t1000 he's grown an extra arm um the finale is just clumsy and boring um again it's just the bad guy it just a boring bad guy brings down an otherwise okay movie. It's bearable because it's only 90 minutes, but pff, even in 1988, this looks pretty dated and tired. And I, it doesn't feel like a Dirty Harry movie, and I think it's the worst of the Dirty Harry movies. So I wouldn't bother with that. And yeah. that was the last one before that the was rookie. the last one. What's, what's the rookie then you mentioned earlier on? Oh, there, apparently there are uh, other other films which are kind of unofficial dirty harry movies well, starring um, clint eastwood yeah well i mean there's the rookie but also um th- there are some links with like gran torino as well stuff like that you know 
So the idea is, is that I don't think it, I don't think it's a shared universe or anything like that, but you could potentially watch these other films as, as, as some kind of a continuity. And to be honest, like there's so little continuity between the actual Canon five films that I can imagine you would be able to like bring in something like Gran Torino or something like that. And imagine this as being Harry in his later years, still curmudgeonly, still borderline racist, but still doing essentially the right thing. Still making a film that was really sentimental. (laughs) With a really terrible actor (laughs) opposite him. Yeah. Um, Who was that? Oh, the kid in Gran Torino was just, Awful. I can't remember. Charlie Sheen is is opposite him in the rookie. Mm. I would imagine, I'm just going to guess, I haven't seen the film, but I'm imagining that Charlie Sheen is the rookie. And it's not like he's weirdly experienced and he's training like Clint Eastwood (laughs) twice his age. Like Clint Eastwood's had like a a midlife career change. He's like, can you help me out here? It's a bit of training. Um, so one, two, and four then are the ones to watch, one, and then just stop. Two, four, yes. Okay. Um, I'm I'm not gonna. I've got two left, but I'll do them next time. Um, okay. Because we, we've gone over two hours. Plus, I'm gonna have to insert when you finally, um, <laughs> yeah, the Tom Thomas Jane to Jeffrey Combs, which I'm really excited about now. Yeah, it's gonna be. It's it's worth it. It's convoluted, but worth it. Yeah. So. Um, sh- should we? Okay. Shall I? Shall I set another one for you for next week? To I think it would it? be. Yeah, I think so. Okay then. Um, okay, right. let me. Have, I'll do it. I'll do it based off the, the films I've seen. Okay. So, I want you to get from Charles Bronson mm-hmm. to uh, from Charles Bronson to Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa. Oh. Hiroyuki, sorry. <laughs> okay. I love it. What a, game. what a game. Like the last one, I thought in my own mind, I, I, yeah, that's doable. This one, I don't even think this is. I don't even think Come in my on. head. It must be. It must be doable. There must be some link via Michael Winner or something. Well, yeah. Think about this for like about a thousand Death Wish films, and is is is. Yeah. You got from the fifties to the nineties, and then Carrie Tagawa's been in films for the last forty years as well. So there's got to be some crossover. Um, right then, film of the week. I was looking mm. at mine as you were chatting. Then I mean, I, I liked Violent City because it was just strange, but I think the two, like Sudden Death, I was pleasantly surprised by. Um, my um, Moving Target was just bad but funny. There's two obviously I didn't talk about, so I think for me it falls between Rampage and Greenland. I did enjoy Greenland more than um, wherever else you spoke to, but I think Rampage I looked at because it was based in a video game series, and I like monster movies, and I got it. I got monster movies, and The Rock was funny and charming, and it there were big monsters in it, Rupert, and it's based in a video game. So yes, for me it's going to be Rampage, not the one directed by Uwe Ball. <laughs> the trilogy directed by Uwe but- Ball, in fact. Yes, well, that's still worth watching the UV Ball film. Maybe not the sequels. Um, uh, so for me, well, Dirty Harry is the best film in that series. Uh, I don't think that's particularly controversial, but I will have a special mention for Sudden Impact for 
revitalizing a series which was becoming a bit tired and uh, yeah i would watch i'd watch sudden impact again i'd watch the first one again and sudden impact again more more than the other ones magnum force is good as well but it's kind of more of the same so yeah watch nice. dirty harry the original and if you had to watch one other i think sudden impact which is the fourth one yeah cool right then mm-hmm. i'll uh let you do your thing and i look forward to hear you get from carrie hiroyuki tagawa to charles bronson okay easy all right <laughs> cool bye-bye bye